upon us, and as we all know, Christmas is a good time to rummage through the corners of our mind and reflect back on things over the years, traditions over the years during Christmas time that have brought to us much joy. And in thinking about this passage today, I was thinking back on Christmas traditions and things that we did in my household growing up, and I'm sure any of you who are my age will reflect upon this same memory that I have. Uh, and that, that memory was of the care that needed to be taken each year so that you did not miss Charlie Brown's Christmas and Rudolph on television. Now, of course, this is in the days before VCRs, before DVDs, before uh, internet, before uh, Fios and DirecTV and, and uh, yeah, what do we have? Whatever ours is, the cable one. Uh, that, that, that we have, and, and you can get these things at any particular time. So in those days, you had to wait till the Sunday paper came out, and the Sunday paper came out for us. You had the big section that came out on Saturdays, and in that Saturday section was the TV guide for the week, and so you opened up the TV guide each, each Sunday or Saturday that it came, and you kind of scanned through to make sure that you caught those particular times when you could see either one of those important shows. Every year, we would watch with despair as Charlie Brown chooses over and over again the awful Christmas tree instead of all of the other beautiful tin Christmas, Christmas trees that are available to him. And every year, we've kind of mourned as he gets called a blockhead once again for making such a boneheaded choice. Now we love, we love his sincerity, we love his hope, and we feel his pain, we feel his disappointment, his disillusionment at the fact that others do not share that when he presents to them this little tree. In our First Corinthians passage that we looked at earlier today, we read that God at least appears to choose people in kind of the same way that Charlie Brown chooses Christmas trees. He chooses the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised of this world. Goes through the lot, pushes the other ones to the side, and says, those are the ones that I want. I'm keeping my attention on them. Now, of course, Paul is writing in the New Covenant, writing after the ministry, the work of Jesus Christ, but God has been choosing like that for a long time. And we could go back a long way in Scripture. I suppose we could go back to the very beginning pages of Scripture, but we'll go back and anchor ourselves this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll allow ourselves to kind of ask this perennial question which is, why did you choose them? And of course, you recognize that in asking, why did you choose them, that now you put this into the, the present tense when they're, they're Israelites, Moses is dealing with this question for them in a present tense. You're going to have to address, why did God choose us as a people? You're going to be tempted with all sorts of thoughts related to God's particular choosing of you. And I, I trust that you will address, uh, understand that it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Israel in this particular passage, or whether we're talking about the Corinthians in the passage that we read earlier, or whether we're talking about us today. The question is, why me? 
why me and why us, and frankly, why not someone else? Why, why didn't you pick someone better than me? Why didn't you pick someone better than us? So look at the, looking at this passage today, we'll consider it just three headings for us, temptation, magnification, and relation. The first thing that I want to consider for us with this passage is temptations. God is preparing His people. He's been preparing His people for this moment for a long time. He's preparing to take them into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, and it's a good land. It's going to be filled with many good things that they are going to receive as they come into this place. They'll be a blessed people as they go into this land flowing with milk and honey. He's going to adorn them. He is going to beautify His people by bringing them into this beautiful land that He has prepared for them. In a similar way, they, they, they take this tree, Charlie Brown's friends eventually, of course, take that bad tree, and they deck it all up. They get it all dressed up in just the right way. Well, God is going to do that with His people. His people haven't looked very nice for the past several hundred years, right? They've been in a low condition. They've been a despised people. They've been a slave people. They didn't have a lot of finery. And now God is dressing them up as they go into this place. And the question that we ask is, well, why them? And why not somebody else? Why me? Why not somebody else? And the temptation, and Moses recognizes this as he addresses the people, the temptation is to think, well, Somehow I've got to explain why God chose me, why God chose them, and therefore it must be that there is something about me, something about us that can explain why God makes this choice. Now, why do we think that way? We think that way because that's how we make our choices. So think about anything. We're talking about treasured possessions here, right? God is making His people His treasured possession. So, treasured possessions. When you go out to shop for something, you weigh a whole variety of things. You want to get the best that you can get for the money that you have to pay. So, you shop, and you look, and you, you choose the best value that you can find and select the particular product that does what you want it to do. It's very natural for us to think, there must be something good because I've been the selected one, the purchased one, the chosen one of all the others that were on the shelf and available to be chosen. Perhaps I'm secretly adorable. I'm witty, I'm gay, I'm charming. I'm beautiful in some particular way. Or if we say, well, that's, that's certainly not the reason why God chose us, maybe we could look at that word that we often use, potential. Maybe what God saw in you when He pulled you out of the world, when He revealed to you His grace and His mercy, was that you were a person full of potential. He just, He didn't look at what you were, He looked at what you would become and said, that is the person that I need to have in my kingdom. It's natural for us to think this way. Somehow we want to think that we must be different from other people in some particular way, or else why would God have made this choice of us? And specifically, in the passage that is before us today, 
Moses throws out a possibility. Now, this is not the only possibility he will throw out if you continue through this section of Scripture. He has a number of scenarios for them. But the temptation might be to think, well, maybe it's because we're, there's a lot of us. There were a lot now who were coming out of Egypt. There were, there were quite a few of them, so maybe, maybe that's it. And Moses, of course, rejects this. No, that's not the reason. There may be quite a few of you now, but here's the reality. The reality is you're coming into a land with nations who are greater than you are. You're coming out of one with a nation that's greater than you are. And when I chose, you were the fewest of all the peoples. You were just a handful. You weren't anything. I could have chosen anybody, and it would have been more than you are, or more than you were at that particular time. So this idea is rejected as a possible explanation of the choosing. Verse 17 says, if you say in your heart, this is when they come into the land, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? And then he goes on to answer that question. What you're saying is, you know, on the one hand, you want to say, well, it's because we're such a numerous people. On the other hand, you're afraid because there's people who are out there who are greater than I am. In either case, what it's rooted in is self. Do you get it? You might be prideful on the one hand, or you might be fearful on the other hand. The point is, whether you're prideful or whether you're fearful, you're rooting the idea of my choice, my protection, my work in you. And that's a dead end. And this is, frankly, it's a daily, whether we recognize it or not, and maybe we, maybe we might be inclined to say, well, we would never do this, but it is a daily universal temptation for the people of God. The fact that we have been chosen by His gratuitous love, instead of humbling us, gets transformed by us into an occasion for pride, or perhaps fear. Now, it, it, it might be in subtle ways that we do that, or in overt ways that we do that, but it is the temptation to feel like we are better than other people. And every single one in this room feels it at some point. I don't know exactly how you manifest it, but you watch the people who are around you, you watch the way that they act, you watch the decisions that they make, and you subtly feel like, I'm better. I wouldn't have done that. That was a bad choice that that person made. And so we become, as a church, the few, the proud, the church. Linus makes this mistake. Now, it's hard to accuse Linus of a mistake. You're on dangerous ground. When he says, I never really thought it was such a bad tree after all. It's really not that bad of a tree. Do you see the shift? The shift right there that Linus makes is there's something within the tree. There's a spark of life that had been unseen to us. And now we see that the tree really was a good tree. That's not the way the gospel works. That is not the way. That's a mistake. 
an attribution error by Linus in this setting. Brothers and sisters, we do not go there. We do not look at ourselves and say, eh, it wasn't so bad after all. Look at what God did with me, albeit over time. The only answer to why you are a treasured possession, great term, a treasured possession of God, the answer to that question will never be found within us. It doesn't have its source inside of us. There's no spark that creates that reality. You and I are beloved bad trees. In and of ourselves, we used to bear only bad fruit as trees. Now, by the grace of God, we bear a little bit of good fruit, but we still bear bad fruit. still comes out of us. You're still a tree worthy to be cut down and thrown into the fire and burned because just one sin will put you in that category. Just one. It's all you need before the holiness of God. You and I are beloved blockheads. We deserve what is written here, verse 10, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. That's very individual. It's very personal. We've, we've gone from corporate pronouns to individuals there. Wrath applied specifically, personally. And that's what we ought to have received. That kind of treatment before God. But we have become beloved nobodies, chosen to be holy somebodies because of the graciousness of God, which brings us to magnification. Obvious question for me, probably obvious question for you, why didn't God choose Egypt? If God is in the business of transforming hearts, he could have transformed Egyptian hearts as easily as he transformed Israelite hearts, right? It's neither more nor less difficult for God to change one heart or another set of hearts. Egypt already had an infrastructure of glory. You could have taken their buildings, their transportation system, their network of relationships amongst the nations of the world. You could have changed all of that and used it for your glory. And certainly it would have gone better. It would have been more efficient. And if your goal is to bring people into this land, well, well surely an Egyptian army converted would be more effective and efficient at driving out the Canaanites than a ragtag group of ex-slaves led by, I'm going to say it one more time, I, I don't know if I'll say it again, but one more time, two old men with sticks who've been taking them around in circles for 40 years in the wilderness. 
surely the Egyptians would have gotten there quicker and driven out the Canaanites. Why not choose them? God seems to not only make surprising choices, it seems like God makes bad choices. Why? Well, the answer is the same. It's the same in the Old Testament. You can read this passage right here and flip it right on top of that Corinthians passage that we read earlier. The answer to this question never changes. The answer is magnification. This seemingly convoluted decision matrix, choice matrix that God uses throughout the millennia is designed to magnify who he is in this world for this world. Verse 9, know therefore, as a result of this choosing, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Why do I do this? I do this for the sake of magnification that you might see what you otherwise might miss. Remember, we can talk about this on a national level. Why did God choose them? But as we looked at the book of Exodus, we saw that this is played out on a personal level for Moses prior to it being played out on the national level, level for Israel. Why are you choosing me for this mission? There has to be somebody better than me to take this people out of this place. And then it gets played out nationally after it gets played out personally. It is God's choice. It is God's means for God's purposes, namely the revelation of His goodness, the revelation of His Godness, of His faithfulness, of His glory, of His justice, of His love, of His wrath. And most particularly, the reason that God chooses this means, this type of choosing, is for the manifestation of His grace, and particularly the manifestation of His grace in Christ Jesus. This is where the Corinthians passage brings us at the end. Why did I do it this way? Why did I choose all of you, weak and low and foolish and people from not noble homes? I did it for the magnification of Jesus Christ, who has become for you your wisdom, your righteousness, your redemption. He's become that for you. That way, there's no question about it. It's our very lack of quality that is the quality which God seeks. This allows his supreme quality to be seen and to be unmistaken. If there is no quality in us, there is less, I can't say no because of the very nature of what we're saying, there is less temptation to think that that is drawn up from something within us or within some group of people. Now, when we hear something like that, it might sound a bit odd to us. Why, after all, should God need such magnification. Is he insecure? Why would he need to use low people 
to magnify his greatness in the world? Is it self-centered? Well, it would be. It would be if this sermon were just about temptation and magnification, but that is not where the passage goes because we have to move on to the relation that God is establishing. God's activity in choosing a people is not merely separation and isolation of that people. It is a separation, but it is a separation unto. It is a drawing out, draw this people out of Egypt so that I can bring this people into Canaan. What will I do there with them? I will dwell with them. I will be in relation with my people in this place. And it will be a model for all of the world coming to be in relation with me as well. God is establishing a relationship with this people, which is not to say that God is on Match.com. It's not to say that God is sitting in his laptop, oh, if I just had a people. Singing queen, can anybody find me somebody to love? And he types in his profile. Who am I? Omniscient, omnipotent, faithful, loving, gracious, holy, love the outdoors, seeking faithful covenant partner someone to be true. Click below. Share your info with me. Think about it for a moment. <laughs> this, is a, this is a silly question. Do you know why God isn't on Match.com? A lot, lot of answers, right? <laughs> a lot of good answers to the question of why God isn't on Match.com. The answer is because He's triune. Because He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Long before God chose Israel, Moses, Abraham, anybody else, God chose His Son, His firstborn. He set His love upon His firstborn. And when you look at the explanation that is provided here for this choosing, God gives two reasons, right? One, I love you. Two, I'm keeping a promise. Now, it is important for our faith, and it is important for God that He is a God who keeps promises. However, if you back up and, and you, and you kind of look at this and go, okay, what promise are you keeping? Promise to Abraham? All right, well, well, that's good that there's a promise to Abraham, but it begs a question, the exact same question that you would ask, why Abraham, right? And the answer is, well, I love him. And I promised who did you promise? To whom is the promise made? You know what he did? He promised his son. Before there was creation, he promised to love the son, and he promised to give the son a people. The promise being kept and the promises made to the people of God are reflective of the promises and the commitments made within the Trinity before the foundation of the world. Trinity isn't 
just the way that God presents himself to us so that we can understand. It's not like God said, well, it would be helpful for people, they're kind of finite after all, if they thought of me as Father, Son, and I know they'll get confused, but Holy Spirit as well. God is Trinity and therefore presents himself in that way, not presenting himself so that we, he can be comprehended. A singular person, God, could not be love without someone to love. A singular person, God, could not be love, we know God is love, without someone to love. That's not a quote, but it's a, it's a, it's a paraphrase from a great book on the Trinity uh, that, I, that I read recently. I can tell you the title of it later. Before there was creation, there was love. Because before any creation, there is Trinity. Now back then to God choosing them, God choosing us. God isn't desperate. God isn't lonely. God isn't in need of finding somebody to love to complete him. God needs no magnification. He is content between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to magnify His glories in and of Himself. He needs no other. That is not the basis of His choosing. God's choosing is an overflow of Trinitarian love. What we see on display when we see God choosing Israel, when we see God choosing us, is something that is reflective of the very nature of God to love the members of the Trinity. And that spills over. It's nothing lacking for which He chooses. It's an overflow of that which He has in abundance, an extension of the Father's love for the Son, His chosen one, His beloved, the one in whom His soul delights, His only begotten, now expanded, now extended unto us, unto them to be chosen. He chooses to increase that love, to increase that family with you. In that choosing, He does not leave the low, low, but he raises them up. He does not leave the foolish, foolish, but he makes them wise. He doesn't leave the weak, weak, but he makes them strong. He doesn't leave the despised, despised, but he makes them beloved. He doesn't leave the sinful, sinful, but he makes them holy. And he does it as Trinity, by God the Father calling them, choosing them, by God the Son dying for them, by God the Holy Spirit being poured out upon them to effect their redemption, our redemption as the people of God. He provides misfit toys a home. And not just a home as in a place to sit up on a shelf, but a place to be loved. He takes misfit people 
And he says, I have a place where you will fit in my kingdom. Now, this world isn't all it will be. We have a foretaste of that now. Some of you come to church and you feel like, I fit. This is my place. These are my people. And others of you, or all of us, some days, feel like, do I fit? Am I part of this? We've got a foretaste now of that which we will have for all eternity, the place to fit within the kingdom of God. We start, we work at it now. What God does through the power of the Spirit is he takes bad trees. He chooses bad trees, neglected trees, unlovely trees, and he adorns them. He doesn't do, you you know, you love that scene in Charlie Brown where they just go like this with all of their hands together and the tree is done. Well, he does it with his spirit. Through the work of a son ascending, blessing, pouring out the spirit upon the church, he beautifies and produces good fruit coming out of his people for his glory. May we be together brothers and sisters, the few, the humble, the beloved, the firstborn fruit of the Son of God. Let's pray together.